When was the last time you or anyone you know said, I'd like to spend a little time talking about sin? A good story takes us on a journey. It reminds us of where we've been and shows us where we could go. A good story makes us feel and inspires us to act. Welcome to the Good Story Podcast, where everyday stories that make you laugh, cry, or feel slightly uncomfortable will leave you inspired as Kirsten King tells true stories and teaches truth. Sin isn't the most popular topic. I'm not saying that in a let's blame the world for not wanting to call sin sin sort of way. I'm saying it more in a, if you could choose something to talk about with your friends at dinner, would you pick the weather, the latest game, what's going on at work, what you're looking forward to in the near or distant future, a TV show you recently watched, would you pick a sale you stumbled upon at Macy's, or talking about your latest car repair, your brother's kids, or your plans for a vacation, or a workout, or a meal, or a meeting, or whatever, or would you choose sin? That's what I mean when I say it's not a popular topic. Some people define sin as missing the mark. And by some people, I mean those who look at Romans 3.23, where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they interpret fall short as missing the mark. They say we fall short, we miss the mark of God's glory. True. But I think that could be a little misleading. It almost makes it sound like we're all doing pretty well, like we're almost there, but we're just a tad off. It could sound like I'm so close, for example, to the glory of God, but I'm just a little short. Dang it. When I was in elementary school, I used to love when we'd have gym, or as the upper grades called it, FIED. I loved it when we'd do our presidential physical fitness testing, minus long distance running part, but... I loved it whenever we would play dodgeball or trench ball, which was like dodgeball, only instead of going on the sideline when you were out, you'd go to the back of the opponent's side and then your teammates could lob a ball to you to catch. And if you caught it successfully, you'd be back in the game. I love that one. It was like the game was second chances. Actually, I think we might play that youth group next. I don't think we've played that yet this year. Um, I also loved floor hockey with our plastic red and blue sticks and the thrill of waiting for your number to be called to go out and play. I also remember feeling like something sort of magical was going to happen when I'd walk into the gym and I'd see the red tumbling mats lining the floor like long stripes. I'd love hearing our gym teacher tell us to line up behind the mats in four squads. I remember liking the word squad. (laughs) I'm in squad too. What squad are you in? It sounded so grown up. We'd line up in our squads and face the mats. Our teacher would tell us to do forward rolls, starting at one end of the mat, travel down, roll after roll after roll until you make it to the other side. Then get off the mat and come back and stand in line behind your squad. I remember doing just that. I traveled down, roll after roll after roll, made it to the other side. I remember standing up, feeling a little dizzy as I was walking back to my squad and hear my teacher say, come on, Kirsten, hustle back. And because I was pretty afraid of her, I would try. After we all had finished our forward rolls, it was time to take turns with a backward roll. We'd squat down, place our hands on either side of our ears, palms up. We were told they were getting ready to meet the floor. 
We'd rock backwards, trusting that our body's momentum would carry us all the way over, and it did, and as our feet would leave the floor, our hands would find it, helping us to complete our rotation. We'd repeat this until we reached the end, where again, we'd exit off and hustle back in line to get ready for my favorite, the straddle roll. With this one, we'd have to stand with our legs a little wider than shoulder width apart, keeping them as straight as we could make them. We'd rock back and forth a little bit, keeping our legs straight. And when it felt right, we'd curl up our toes inside your socks, getting ready to push off. We'd place our hands close together on the floor, directly in front of us. We'd tuck our chin to our chest, do our forward roll with our legs stiff as boards and our hands pushing us up as we'd go. And again, we'd repeat and repeat and repeat until the end of the mat. At the end of our time together, we'd all spread out on our mats in front of us in our respective squads and attempt the three-legged stool. Head down, hands down, and slowly we'd lift our knees to rest upon our elbows. And there we were, a three-legged stool. And when we were good enough, our teacher would tell us we could try to extend our feet to the ceiling and complete a headstand. I remember showing these to my parents in the living room in the evenings. I felt really good at them. I actually, in the middle of when I was writing this, stopped writing and went to my room and tried them. We have hardwood floors, so I had to put a pillow on the floor for my head. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about this. Anyway, I, let me just say my leg extension left a little bit to be desired right there. I think I just need a tumbling mat. Maybe that's it. At any rate, I loved the tumbling unit, but not nearly as much as I loved pin guard. This was my all-time favorite game. I would play it tomorrow if I could. I literally would play this tomorrow if I could. I loved this game. As we'd enter the gym, we'd each grab a small scooter. Not the Razor-type scooter or the rent-a-scooter-with-your-app-and-tool-around-downtown type of scooter, but a scooter that had a 16-inch square seat with four like roller skate wheels situated, one on each corner. The scooter sat just a few inches above the ground. We'd take our scooter, whichever one we picked, and walk toward one of the bowling pins that was set up around the room. They were just everywhere. We could choose whichever one we wanted, and you wanted to choose carefully because pin placement and pin guard was pretty important. Once we made our selection, we'd show we were ready by sitting on our scooter directly in front of our pin, and we'd wait. When we had all found our spots, our teacher would walk to the center of the gym, blow our, the whistle to get our attention, and she would say, okay. You know the rules. You have to stay on your scooter at all times. The goal of this game is to be the last person with your pin still standing. In order for that to happen, you need to get all the other pins down. The way you do that is not by kicking them, not by running your scooter into them, not by hitting them over with your hand. The only way, are you listening? The only way you can get a pin down is by hitting it with a ball. Oh, you can throw the ball. You can kick the ball. You can slap at the ball. You can do whatever you want. You want to hit down the other pins with the ball while you're guarding your own from being knocked down. Everybody ready? Then she'd blow her whistle again, toss a couple balls in the air, and say, pin guard. 
We'd start inching forward as fast as we could on our scooter, scrambling to be the first one with a ball. And then once we'd get it in our hands, we'd propel ourselves backward as fast as we could, kicking our heels into the ground, first one, then the other, alternating as quickly as we could. And then all the while, having an eye on our own pin, trying to protect them from being knocked over. And we start throwing balls and doing this. I remember playing this game, feeling equal parts excited, nervous, and triumphant whenever we played. I loved it. It was my favorite. Eventually... I left Richardson Elementary School and moved on to John Glenn Junior High. We still had gym class, which was good, but we now had gym clothes, which were not. Some of you may remember these one-piece rompers that zipped up the front. The short section was navy blue, and the top part had blue and white horizontal stripes, almost looked like prison issued, but we wore these every day. And even though we were told to bring them home to wash them, some people would forget And if you were next to them the next week, like you wish they hadn't, Uh, we left behind pin guard and tumbling. We moved on to badminton and tennis, volleyball and line soccer. These were fun. These were super fun. But what wasn't fun for me, at least, was archery. The unit began as every gym unit did in junior high. Learn the facts before the fun and safety first. We each got an arm guard to protect us from the bowstring snapping us upon its release. We each got a finger tab to wear to make the pulling of the bowstring easier, supposedly. We learned about the parts of the bow. Some were self-explanatory, like the upper and lower limbs of the bow, those, and the bowstring. I got that. The knocks were the notches on the limb that held the string in place. The handle was called a grip, which makes sense, and it also contained the arrow rest, which was a tiny little ledge that you rested your arrow on while you were getting ready to aim it. The arrow had parts too. The shaft, the fletching, which is like the feathers, the arrowhead, and the knock. The knock was the part that was at the back of the arrow that the string fit into. Remember, bug me, they use the same word as part of the bow, but whatever, that was the least of my problems. The bigger part of my problem was that I was a scrawny junior high kid who struggled each day in archery to pull the drawstring back far enough in order for it to allow my arrow to take flight when I'd release it. Day in and day out, I'd load my arrow and rest it on the arrow rest. I balanced it between my fingers, obvious, for obvious reasons, we're told not to hold on to it. I pulled back the bowstring with the index finger of my pulling hand. I knew the goal was to get the hand all the way back where it was under my chin and the string would touch my nose and lips. But I'd pull it back a couple inches and I'd start to shake and shake and shake and the arrow would drop to the ground. I'd try this again and again and again. The arrow rest seemed way too small. The string was too tight. My arm was too sore. (laughs) I'd look down the row of my classmates and I watched them hitting their targets. Some were hitting them in the red, some in the blue, but some even found the yellow bullseye. I improved a little. Soon, my arrows were let loose. They'd go forward and they'd slide into the ground, slicing the ground like worms. I knew I wasn't holding the bow up high enough. I knew I wasn't supposed to aim at the ground, but it didn't seem like I was able to do that and pull back the string both. It was either one or the other. Either my bow is right or my string is not pulled back or my bow is down and I'm pulling it back pretty far. That's all I could do. Once, I let the arrow fly far enough though that with the distance in flight, plus the distance on the ground, it actually touched the base of the target. Obviously, no points were scored, but it gave me hope. And rightly so. 
because one day, miracle of miracles, the unbelievable happened. I don't remember doing anything differently. I don't remember thinking anything differently. I don't remember anything specific about my equipment or the weather or anything really about that day, indicating that something out of the ordinary was going to happen. Maybe I would have paid closer attention to the particulars if I had had a clue, but I didn't. Instead, I think I just walked up to the line like usual. I placed my arrow on the arrow rest like what felt like normal. I held the bow vertical with the stiff arm as best as I could. I pulled the bowstring back as far as I was able. I closed one eye so I could aim better, and I released the string, and the arrow flew in the air. And I watched it fly, and I watched it hit right in the center of the yellow bullseye. I was so excited. I jumped up and down. I kept saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. My teacher walked over to me and said, I can't believe it either. You hit the wrong target. I stopped jumping and froze. I turned around and looked at the target that was lined up with where I was standing and noticed nothing was there. The bullseye was empty. I looked to my right and saw the teacher was right because my arrow was right there in the middle of the target, one row over. That's sin, guys. It isn't just falling short of the target. It's aiming at the wrong one and sometimes nailing it right in the center of the bullseye. Adam and Eve maybe introduced us to sin in the world or introduced sin to the world, but we certainly continue the relationship. Even though we may have experienced the freedom that comes with the forgiveness of our sin by God because of Jesus' work on the cross, we still can find ourselves struggling with it. Paul understood this. In fact, he too dealt with this pull of wanting to aim at the wrong target himself. In Romans 7, Paul says, And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's the sin that's living in me that does it. Paul's telling the church in Rome that the battle between our sinful nature, which aims at wrong targets, and our spiritual nature, that God has transformed and changed and really wants to aim at the right target, bringing glory to God, is real. This struggle, it's real. Paul struggled with this, but Paul also told us that each day we can find grace upon grace to help us in our time of need. Did you know that God never allows us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear? Did you know that in your temptation to sin, God will always provide a way to escape it? Paul wrote that promise to the church at Corinth. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to us all. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's encouraging. We need to take that way of escape. When we find ourselves aiming at the wrong target, wanting what we want, when we want it at the expense of others or honesty or whatever, when we find ourselves aiming at pleasure or money or fame or laziness or gluttony or drunkenness or immorality or unkindness or anger or selfishness, whenever we find ourselves aiming at something like that, something sinful, something off course, God will direct us away from that and towards himself as we ask him to and as as we obey him when he corrects our aim. Romans 6, 12 to 14 says, 
Don't let sin control the way you live. Don't give in to sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Any part of your body. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. We don't need to aim at evil. We are told we can give ourselves completely to God. We can live under the freedom of God's grace. Keep in mind, this verse isn't saying sin a lot. It's no big deal because it's covered. In fact, Paul asked that rhetorical question of the church at Rome earlier in this chapter. He said, should we continue in sin so that grace will increase? And then he answered himself. He said, no way. He actually said, may it never be. Same thing. No way. Which makes sense, really. (laughs) In view of God's mercy, as we really understand what he has saved us from, death, evil, hopelessness, our sinful nature, as we understand that we can live in freedom following after him, as we understand we can aim at what's true and right because of what he's done, we can strive toward who we were created to be, all because of God's grace. This is a great promise. This is a great blessing. So, well, on my own, I may not only miss the mark, and on my own, I may fall short of the glory of God, and on my own, I may be aiming at the right target altogether. I can know that because of God's faithfulness, He will continue to be at work in me to help me gain victory over the various areas of my life where I'm aiming to sin. Part of that victory comes when I spend time in God's word, reading and understanding what I should be thinking about and what I should be saying and how I should be saying it and how I should be responding. Part of that victory over sin comes when I spend time in prayer, confessing to the Lord the areas where I've struggled, confessing my sin to the Lord. Remember, confession isn't letting God in on some big secret. Lord, I have to confess to you. And I was driving in my car right now. I just got called the guy in front of me a big, fat loser jerk face, and I don't even know him or whatever. God knows what we've just said. He also knows what we've just thought. We confess to God because it's the way we're agreeing with him that sin is sin. And we acknowledge that we've been taking aim at something other than his glory. Part of the victory over sin comes when we learn how to take responsibility for our own sin and don't look to blame others. It's natural, meaning it's part of our sinful nature to want to look around and find someone to blame. Instead, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who chose to take the penalty for our sin and invites us to no longer live under its power. Together, let's aim high, let's aim accurately, And let us at least aim at the right target for crying out loud.